Let's open with a word of prayer. Almighty God, we approach you humbly. We approach you together as a community, knowing your spirit is present here. We pray that we will be empowered to stay true to your word, that we will see through the deceptions of the world and know that the revelation that you have given us through the prophets, through the apostles, and ultimately through your son, Jesus Christ, will be evident to us that you will move us closer to you and that we will respond with faith. We ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay. Uh, A couple of things or maybe one thing before I begin. Uh, <clears throat> Hoyt is going to do one more class next Sunday after this one. And then, and that will be the end of church history uh, in terms of what we're covering in the class. But we'll do one more Sunday where we'll probably, we'll do uh, just kind of a, a review of everything and, and just kind of, and talk about some of the main themes that have been running through the, the class since it's been, I, I think we started this in October. Um, so it's been a while, so we'll kind of circle back to the beginning and, and to, to close it out. And then we'll probably do a half hour or so of question and answer on whatever you guys want to ask and talk about uh, from the class. And even if it's not a, a question so much as, could you just talk about this again or whatever. So. That's in two weeks, so be thinking about that. And that'll be then be the end of, of, what we, of the church history class. And what comes after that? Don't ask me. So, I'm not in charge. Um, so, but we're nearing the end. And we will end on a high note, but today we're going to be uh, on a bit of a downer note. It's, uh, it's not a happy topic to discuss. And... It's a lot of ideas. Today we will be very idea-rich and Bible-poor. But the reason for this is to point the way to how much of the church today has gone astray. When we look at churches like the Episcopalian Church or the Presbyterian Church or the Methodist Church, and we, we see them doing things that... It's like, how can you even look at the Bible and say that you can do this? Uh, you know, in approving of lifestyles and ways of thinking that are completely antithetical to what is revealed in Scripture. And yet, they call themselves Christians. So today's class is really intended to show how that happened and to stand as a signpost of warning for us to, to not follow in those footsteps. So does that make sense? So it's going to be kind of depressing. Um, but I, at the end, I, I, I included, we'll just spend the last 15 minutes of class, maybe more, talking about uh, a positive thing. So we won't end the class on a downer note. Um, so this is going to be a lot of philosophy, and I'm sorry. I'm, if, if it makes your head hurt, that's okay. Sometimes my head hurts too. Um, so, but it, you know, the thing is, it is important. And at the end of the day, talking about the philosophy, the purpose of all this is 
to help the world that we live in today make more sense. It doesn't make sense when you just look at these churches and say, where on earth are you getting that? You know, where, how do you justify doing that? Well, there is a reason, and there was a trajectory that led them there, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. So, okay, are we ready? All right. Uh, and you'll also note, I did something I used to do, but I haven't done it in a while, there in the middle of the first page. I just listed a, a few important terms, so you can just quickly glance at those and uh, as a reference. Um, so, some of, we're going to start at the same place we did the last time I was teaching, which was with the Enlightenment. And <clears throat> because that really, that intellectual movement turned the world upside down. And it, in some ways it turned the world upside down overnight, and in some ways it took centuries for the effects to really ripple out through society and, and to be seen for what they were. So, prior to the Enlightenment, though, as far as the church is concerned, we, we were in the Reformation. And the Reformation was a very, very good thing. <clears throat> However, there's no but to that. It was, a, it was an un, undiluted good thing. But the reformers, the one thing they did do that will have some negative fruit, and it's not really from them, but from the generations that followed them and amplified what the reformers did, that really is where the, the fruit is going to be born, and that is this, they questioned tradition. Because prior to the Reformation, from the time of the apostles to the Reformation, the church had three legs on a stool that kind of held the, the, the whole endeavor up. And the main leg, the leg, was revelation. So what is revelation? Well, it's the scriptures. And as it says in Hebrews, Jesus Christ was God's greatest revelation. So revelation was the primary thing that filtered our the church's worldview but it had two legs that didn't support it so much as help the stool to stand but it functioned as a chaperone kind of kept the boundaries in place on revelation because you can interpret if you take one verse or two verses you can interpret them to mean anything right so tradition and reason those two twin tools kind of kept the church on the right path. But through the Middle Ages, tradition became distorted. And it became authoritative even over Scripture. So, and the Reformers were reacting against that. And they were, they were trying to push the church back onto the track that it had been on. But in so doing, they questioned tradition as an authority, not the authority, but an authority, and that weakened the chaperone that on the boundaries. So then comes the Enlightenment. And <clears throat> the Enlightenment was a movement that 
emphasized reason over all else. Through the employment of your mind, you can reach the truth. And by elevating reason, they are the, the followers of the Enlightenment are going to push down on revelation as an authority. So it's going to be reason, and then they're going to put a revelation in the trash can, and that's it. Yes? Yes, so reason is, I mean, the definition that I, I put there on the notes, it says the ability of the mind to form concepts, think, judge, and understand things. So the whole in endeavor is focused in your mind, using your mind to come to a conclusion based on rational evidence. Is revelation rational? They're going to say no. Because what they're, saying, what they're going to be looking at is it's going to become a dichotomy between the supernatural and the natural. Can you observe the supernatural? No, not necessarily. So reason is going to dictate that you are going to elevate the natural over the supernatural. That's, that's going to be a basic axiom of the Enlightenment. And as we talked about last week, and I kind of recapitulated some of the last, the last, not last week, but two weeks ago, some of my notes, I reincorporated them and modified them a little bit there in the first section. That's, that whole concept of reason is going to first come to the fore with Rene Descartes, the French philosopher who's going to say the famous phrase, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. So he is a rationalist. He is emphasizing the element of reason over all things, and his existence is dictated on the fact that he can reason. Animals cannot reason. They are strictly cause and effect creatures. They cannot contemplate things the way that humans can by employing reason. So he is recognizing that Humanity is different and that we have a faculty that animals don't have and that becomes the sole basis for his existence. And as we talked about two weeks ago, <clears throat> within the Enlightenment there is going to be a camp that is going to respond to the rationalists, those who employ reason, and they're going to say no. All knowledge is not known through reason. All knowledge is first gained through the senses and experience. So all your reason, even though you're thinking about all these things, what you're really gaining is input from touch, eyes, hearing, taste, you know, all of smell, that all of those things and the emotions that process them is the basis for your knowing things. And that truth is really going to come through exploring those things. And so within the Enlightenment, there's going to be this push and pull between these two groups. And ultimately, <clears throat> it's all going to be exploded by a philosopher named Immanuel Kant. And he is going to be a rationalist, but he is going to recognize that you have to that there are things beyond the scope of reason that 
can't be touched on like the concept of God. You can think about God. You can think about some kind of ultimate reality, but reason will never get you to that. And so he is going to question what we call epistemology, how we know things. And so Kant is going to turn the Enlightenment upside down and sort of cast people adrift because they had been pursuing this endeavor for almost 200 years and suddenly he's going to say, yeah, no, there are limits to all this, but I don't really have an answer as to what the solution to that is. But Kant is going to see value in Christianity and value in religion in general. But he's going to see this as not a spiritual or what he would call a noumenal endeavor. But Kant is really going to say, no, it's an ethical system. And there's value in following Christianity because it is an ethical system that guides you in how you live. Okay, so I know that's all out there, but that's kind of setting the stage for the guy I really want to talk about today. And he is, his name is Friedrich Schleiermacher. And Schleiermacher is often called the father of liberal theology. So it's, it's really with Schleiermacher that you're going to see the beginnings of this departure within Christianity from the authority of Scripture, from within the church. So Schleiermacher is <clears throat> basically going to... He, sorry. He is going to be raised in a Christian family in what in the 18th century Europe you might call the evangelical context. So there, were move, there was a movement called the Pietists, and there were several different Pietists, but this particular group that he was born into uh, <coughs> were called the Moravians. And they actually traced their descent to Jan Hus, or John Hus. Does anyone remember talking about Hus? We talked about Hus in class. He was one of the proto-reformers. He was uh, trying to reform the church in the century right before the Reformation. So the Moravians had a long history of <clears throat> a positive influence on the church. And ultimately, just as a totally incidental side note, a lot of the, the Moravians, they're from Bohemia, which is now the modern Czech Republic. That's where they came from. They are going to ultimately migrate to America. And to this day, there are still Moravian churches here in America that are not, a lot of them are not theologically different too much from where we're at but they trace their they have an independent history that goes back to Huss before the Reformation just an interesting side note but Schleiermacher is going to be born into this this context and, and his family are devoted pietists but he's going to go off to college warning sign and he is going to fall under the sway of these thinkers the you know, and he's going to feel the push and the pull of the rationalist versus the empiricist. And ultimately, he's going to fall into the empiricist or the, the camp. They're the group that emphasizes emotion and experience over pure reason. And, but Schleiermacher 
is still dedicated to, quote unquote, the church. And he doesn't want to abandon the good ship Christian. He, he, he wants to stay in the fold. But at the same time, he is going to want to reconcile the enlightenment views of reason and experience with the forms of Christianity. So he doesn't want to leave the church, but he, wants, he decides to save the church. He has to make it palatable to followers of the enlightenment. In other words, he wants to make it relevant. We're all familiar with that term. So he wants to make it applicable. And so what Schleiermacher is ultimately going to do is he is going to radically redefine what it means to be a Christian. Now, he will never, ever in his life stop calling himself a Christian. He will never stop saying he absolutely believes in Jesus. And he will never stop saying that salvation is found only in Jesus. These are all things that he is going to affirm. But what does he mean by them? That is the question. So you could have a conversation with Schleiermacher and you're just going to be shaking your head. Yeah, yeah, totally. I agree with you. But you're not going to agree with each other. Even though you're using the same words, you mean very, very different things. And all of these, just again, to circle back, all of the liberal denominations that we see today all trace their interpretation of the Bible and not just their interpretation, but the way they view the Bible back to Schleiermacher. So this is the beginning. <clears throat> so what does he teach? <clears throat> he teaches that, I mean, he, he, he felt like he had to save the church from itself. And in so doing, he is going to have to reject things that are, as Kant would say, unknowable about God. So, things like the Trinity, the God-man of Christ, the incarnation, the fact that he is fully God and fully man, are those things that we can know using pure reason? Now, these are matters of faith, right? Faith and revelation in Scripture. He's going to say, well, we can't know those things, so we're just going to reject them. We're going to reject the fact that Scripture is inspired by God. We don't know that. We can't tell that. So we're just going to reject that. <clears throat> so all of these, un, as he perceived them, unknowables are going to be tossed. But what is he going to replace it with? We're on the top of the third page now. <clears throat> what Schleiermacher is going to replace it with is feeling. And he had a word for it in German. I think it, the word was Gefühl. But that's, you know, it, the, the, his word doesn't translate neatly into English. But feeling is kind of the generally accepted word. It's really, what do I feel about God? What does my encounter by, by reading the Bible, what do I feel about Christ? That's really going to be 
the essence of what he's after. And really where he wants people to go is the overwhelming feeling of dependence on God. That's really the goal of the Christian church, is to inspire a feeling of dependence on God. Now, dependence on God is a good thing, but is is that really the focus of what we're after, the feeling of dependence on God? No. But keep in mind, he's part of the group that emphasizes experience and emotion over pure reason. So he is applying those... I'm sorry, my throat is very hoarse. Um, He is applying those enlightenment principles to the church, and he is... He is saying, whatever you are feeling about God is the truth, and you need to pursue that truth. So it's very subjective. It is not objective. We, on the other hand, are objective. We have an object, Jesus Christ, and we worship him as God. He is God. Our feelings about him only matter so much as are we submitting to his will and pursuing his righteousness. What we feel about him, you know, I don't want to say it's irrelevant, but that's not the focus of what we're here for. We're here to submit and to worship and to honor him, not to have a feeling about him. So everything that Schleiermacher is then going to teach is subjective in nature. But where does that leave Christ? Or where does that leave God? What is God in his view? Well, he is going to teach that God is imminent. And that's the word I-M-M-A-N-E-N-T, which means he is everywhere. He He is in all things. He is near to all things. And this is going to be the foundation of the 19th century, that's the 1800 transcendental movement. So guys like Thoreau are going to follow after Schleiermacher and they're going to, you know, they're going to say that, well, God is nature. Have you heard, have you heard that before? Yeah, well, that's going to come from Schleiermacher. He's going to say God is not a singular being, but is an imminent entity that is diffuse throughout creation throughout nature. He wouldn't say creation. That's me editorializing. But he's going to, he's going to say that, that God is, is present in all things and transcends all things and he is just in us. And this is also where we get the beginnings. Thank you, Doug. Is this coffee? Oh, well, no. I've never... wouldn't probably help me either anyway. But I appreciate it. So it's really going back again to Schleiermacher that we get even now the New Age stuff here in Mount Shasta. They find their roots back in Schleiermacher. Do they love Jesus? Yeah, they love Jesus. He was a great guy. You know, he had some cool words. Uh, He had some good ideas. But was he... The Son of God? 
in, you know, the, the second person of the Trinity, the, the God-man? No, he wasn't those things. You know, we just reject all of that. But, yeah, he was a cool guy, and God is in everything, and nature is, you know, to be elevated above God. Did you have a question? <clears throat> some do, some do, but a lot of, you know, it's been filtered through so many different layers now over the last couple hundred years that there's not as much uh, overt recognition of Schleiermacher, but if you trace, you know, their development, the New Age movement, it's going to be mixed with a lot of Eastern stuff, but this whole concept of, of Christ and of nature and this view of God, this is all going to come from, from Schleiermacher. Because it's going gonna, it's gonna to morph in so many different ways. And it's, you know, people are going to pick up on it and take it in different ways. And some people are going to stay in the church, you know, quote unquote, in the church, even though they're going to radically redefine everything that the church should be teaching. Excuse me. But... <clears throat> Uh, others are going to take the ideas of his view of God as being imminent and transcendent, and they're going to just equate that with nature, and then that you know they're going to run with that. Thank, thank you very much. Hot. Thank you, Doug. Um, <clears throat> so. Schleiermacher really is a pivotal figure that is is redefining people's approach to God. I mean, in, in just to, to recap, it's, it's rejecting revelation. So all the things that the Bible teaches about Christ are rejected. All the things that the Bible teaches about God are rejected. But the forms of the church, those are maintained. Those are, that becomes the thing that, that is the utmost important because that is what is the context of your experience and feeling of God. So, an Episcopal church, and I'm not saying this to name names or to be harsh or to rankle feathers, but an Episcopal church that ordains homosexuals into their clergy, well, what do they do with all the parts of the Bible that say that might not be a good thing? I'm understating that. Well, they're not even asking that question because the Bible is not authoritative. They're following Schleiermacher. It's your feeling that is authoritative. Does it feel good to give these people that position? Yes. Well, then they should have it. Their encounter, your encounter with God is based on this feeling. And the Bible really doesn't have anything to do with it. So that once, once they made that switch, once they, they said, we're going with Schleiermacher, we're not going with Luther or Calvin or, you know, Peter or Paul, then... It's subjective. Everything is open to be reinterpreted. Does that make sense? So as far as the church adopting that view, or part of the church, that all starts with Friedrich Schleiermacher. And he lived in the, 
I didn't put the dates for when he was alive, but he was alive from, this isn't totally right, but about 1760 to 1830, thereabouts. So, so he, is, he is absolutely going to be a pivotal figure in the church because of the direction he is going to send a large part of the church. Yes. I don't think so. I don't know the answer to that per se, but I mean, he was mostly influenced by Kant was where his, his chief influence was. So, but I could look into that. So, okay. <clears throat> so, a couple other people I want to talk about briefly before we go on a more positive note. Um, and again, the reason that this is important is because I mean, we have neighbors, our church here, we have neighbor churches that are in the tradition of Schleiermacher. And we believe some very, very different things. So even though they retain the forms, they don't retain the substance. And, and this is where it goes back to. And just to go back to, you know, two weeks ago when we talked about the Second Great Awakening, they're kind of... You know, Finney and guys in the Second Great Awakening, they're kind of in a middle ground. They still uh, retained a belief in, in revelation and scripture, but they also elevated experience and emotion almost on an equal level. And so during the Second Great Awakening, it was what, what is your emotional response to something from the scripture that becomes your your valid faith. So it, it's kind of a middle ground, but that's a, we already went over that. Okay, so the, the two other guys that I want to talk about are <clears throat> Adolf von Harnack and Albrecht Ritchel. And it's through them that we start to see uh, some more recognizable forms of, the lib of liberal theology starting to take shape. And Harnack You'll note, the, you know, one thing that's worth noting is that Kant, Schleiermacher, we didn't talk about Hegel, but he was also incredibly influential in all of this. Harnack, uh, Ritchell, uh, other guys we're going to talk about in a, little, in a few minutes, like Wellhausen. All of this stuff, what do you notice about those names? They're all Germans. So 19th century German liberal philosophy is profoundly influential in the world. Nietzsche, the nihilist, he's in this school. You know who else comes from this school? What? Dar well, Darwin, though he's English, but Karl Marx is another German coming out of this school of philosophy. So none, this is not relegated just to an impact on the church. It's going to have an impact on the whole world in a variety of ways. So this is, it's really good for us to know and have, we don't have to know it in and out, but at least be aware of it because these are world-altering ideas. So, okay, so Harnack and Ritual. Harnack is, is, is an unusual guy. I mean, he's not unusual like he's a weirdo. 
he's unusual in that he is not a theologian, but he is a historian. But his view of the history of the church is going to be profoundly influential. And he is the guy who is going to really uh, articulate for the first time the view that the church moved from the teachings of Jesus away from Jesus and became more teachings about Jesus. So what he's going to what he's basically saying is yeah, the beatitudes, the sermon on the mount, those are beautiful things and I love them. But Paul, eh, not so much. And that he's going to he's going to see a a movement away from the ethical and into the theological. So the early church, the church of Jesus, was, was an ethical movement, and it's going to move into a movement that is focused on theology and dogma and doctrine and things like that. And he's going to see that as not a good move. So, But <clears throat> what he is going to see in the church is... <clears throat> excuse me. He is going to see the church as the world's best organizing principle of humanity. And that the church should be retained because it is a powerful tool for organizing people and ultimately meeting ethical purposes. And that is going to be adopted as a, a centerpiece of liberal theology. And that's going to then be reinforced by the other guy, which I don't have to talk about much because I don't have a lot of time, but Albrecht Ritchell, Ritchell he's, gonna, he's, gonna, he's the guy that Harnack looks to and says, yeah, he's got the right idea because Ritchell is going to say that Schleiermacher's feeling was good, but it's too individual. The community still has a role. And so it's ritual's vision that's going to become dominant within these, these uh, liberal denominations, which balances the individual experience and emotion and the rejection of the revelation with the ethical value of the community teachings that one can find in the Bible. And ultimately... What's going to come from this is Rauschenbusch's, who was an American, but a German that came to America in the late, 18, or late 19th century, so the late 1800s, he's going to write a book called The Social Gospel. And that's going to be a, a new articulation of Ritchell and Harnack and Schleiermacher in an American context saying, what is the church's role in the world? To provide for the poor, to make sure people are treated well, to make sure that humanity is following an ethical course. And so all of these liberal denominations are really going to latch on to that. I mean, we've all heard that term, social gospel. I mean, we've heard that before. That's what this, this is where it comes from. And that is going to be the ultimate goal of these liberal denominations. Any questions about that?
I know that's a lot of philosophy, and I hope that, but I hope that through all the words and sounds and everything like that, that some clarity to how the world that we live in came to be, how people that call themselves Christians, and I don't mean this in a judgmental way, really are nothing of the sort. I mean, they don't affirm those things which the church has always affirmed. And it's a tragedy because they, they are, as a group, and I know there are exceptions within those groups, so I just want to be clear on that, but as a group, going to be part of the people who will cry, Lord, Lord, and they will be told to depart for they, he did not know them. So it's a, it's a tragic thing that the form and the content has been has been emphasized over the content that the feeling has been emphasized over the truth that the natural has been emphasized over the supernatural and you know it echoes what Paul says in Romans 1 <clears throat> where you know in their perversion that these you know, that people shifted their worship from the creator to the created thing. And it's really just a newer version of an old thing. As Solomon says, there is nothing new under the sun. So, if you drive by, you know, a, an, a, a liberal Presbyterian church or a liberal Episcopal church, and there's still churches in each of those traditions that have maintained truth but they are the significant minority and increasingly on the fringes. But as you drive by those other churches, you can say, thanks, Schleiermacher. So, okay. So in the last 15 minutes or so, I want to talk about something a little more positive. But it still does involve the Enlightenment. <clears throat> um, and the night has to get a little darker before we can see the light here. So... One of the other aspects of the Enlightenment was critical studies, and that is taking a rational eye and putting it on things in a new way and evaluating them according to cold reason and fact as they perceived it. And so what will ultimately become a target for that? What's the likely target? What? Divinity. How do, we, how do we encounter divinity? Through what? Through the Bible. So, you know, God reveals himself in the scriptures. And so ultimately the Bible is going to become a target for this rationalist endeavor. And this is what we call critical studies. And they, they are taking a critical eye to literature and they do this to other things like the Odyssey or the Iliad and so on. But the Bible is always going to be the big target. And so there's going to be a whole new discipline that's going to grow up of critical studies with regards to the Bible. And they are not treating it as scripture. They're treating it as any other ancient document. So the Epic of Gilgamesh, which hadn't been discovered yet at that point, would be treated with the exact same literary scrutiny 
that the Bible is going to be treated with. And ultimately, that's going to lead to the work of another German named Julius Wellhausen. And he is going to be credited with the invention of what we call the documentary hypothesis. And he's going to say, the Bible really isn't the revelation of God. It's really not even the work of a whole bunch of different authors. He's going to say it's a whole bunch of even more authors because all the books, except for some short ones, are going to have multiple authors. So Isaiah isn't really Isaiah. It's two or four different people writing things that are going to be put together in one book and everyone's just going to say, well, that's Isaiah. Or that Genesis is really the work of several different groups of people, all with their own different agendas. And they're going to look at various things in the scriptures that are going to, to them, be markers of different authors and different agendas. So, for example, the names of God are going to be very important to them. In the Old Testament, you know, God has many, many names, but the three most common are Elohim, Yahweh, and Adonai. And they're going to say, well, those who use, you know, those parts that are using Elohim are one agenda group, and those who are using Yahweh are a separate agenda group, and those who are using Adonai are another agenda group. And so they're going to completely dissect the scriptures <coughs> and really degrade them. It's really degrading. And a lot of it, when you get down to the brass tacks, is actually really dumb and simplistic. But they dress it up in all this philosophy and stuff, and they make it seem credible to some degree. And a lot of work has gone into refuting these assertions in very strong and powerful ways to affirm the authenticities of the scriptures. And it's a good thing, but that's not really what we're here to talk about. What I want to talk about is one of the beginnings of the movement to respond to that was the, rest, the movement to restore as best as we are able to, and it's a movement that is still ongoing to this day, to restore the Bible in its original languages, Hebrew and Greek, as closely as we can get to the original text of the Bible. And <clears throat> why is this important? Because, well, are there, do we all have a Bible? Yeah, we all do. Are there Bibles in the pews? Yes, there are. When those are translated into English, what is actually being translated? I mean, do we have a collection of the letters that Paul wrote, like the Paul's letters? Do we have those to translate? No. So how has the Word of God been transmitted over the centuries since the canon closed? Well, that is the work of people what we call textual critics. And it is the work of gathering together all of the documents, all the Greek manuscripts and the Hebrew manuscripts, but most of this work that I'm going to be talking about is the Greek stuff. It's the work of gathering those all together and evaluating them with that critical eye of the Enlightenment 
but with the purpose of restoring the Word of God to getting as close as we can back to its original form. Because what we have are copies of copies, right? Well, those copies were done by hand. Some monk or scribe had to sit at a desk for a year or two and write each letter of the Bible to make a copy. Are guys going to make mistakes? Are they going to get tired? Are they going to spill some mustard from their sandwich on what they're working on? I'm not joking. I mean, maybe not a sandwich, but, you know, accidents happen. And so mistakes are made in the copying. And then what happens if somebody copies that one? Well, now you have a mistake introduced. And so the purpose of textual criticism is to work through all the extant copies of the Scripture to get as close as we can to the text. And the Bible that you have is the fruit of that. And so while Schleiermacher and Ritchell and Harnack and Wellhausen are assaulting the Scriptures and degrading the Scriptures, there were also people who are going to bring some of the tools of the Enlightenment the positive tools. Did God make us a rational being? Yes, he did make us a rational being. So reason is not a bad thing. Reason is only bad when it is elevated above God. And so there are going to be people that are going to recognize that reason, there is a place for reason. There had always been a place for reason in the church. God made us to be reasonable, rational followers of him and so there are going to be people that are going to take these tools of the enlightenment and they are going to bring them to bear in defense of the scriptures and the bibles that every single one of us have unless it's an original king james version is the fruit of that endeavor so, I mean, who here has an original King James, you know, in their hand that they bring to church? Well, the new King James has seen some of this textual criticism done on its base, uh, the, the Greek manuscripts that were used. The new King James was produced in 1611, and that used the original Textus Receptus of Erasmus. It's different from what I'm about to talk about. So it's an older translation. All the newer translations that we have, I don't care if it's NASB, NIV, ESV, NET, uh, CSB, all of these different translations that we have in English are all going to be based on one thing, which is the work of a few different people. And that's what I want to talk about here to close. This is a positive impact that the Enlightenment, it's small, I mean it's significant actually, but compared to all the damage the Enlightenment is going to do, positive fruit will still be born. Even in the destruction, God is still at work. And so there's two, peop three people, but two groups of people I want to talk about. The first one is a, another German named Konstantin von Tischendorf. And the guy is a hoot, let me tell you. He's like Indiana Jones. No, seriously. And he, he's going to have all sorts of adventures, but his greatest achievement was while he was traveling through Egypt 
in the Sinai Peninsula, there is a, a, a monastery there called St. Catherine's. And the monastery was founded in the mid-500s. So it's 1,500 years old. And it, through all the, the travails of history, through the Islamic conquest of that part of the world and all the wars, this monastery has just been off on its own out in the desert in the Sinai Peninsula. And Tischendorf is going to go to this monastery and he's going to be rummaging through the library and he is going to find a copy, a complete copy of the Bible that we now call Codex Sinaiticus that has the complete New Testament and the Old Testament. Now, some of the Old Testament has been lost since he found it. But it's the oldest extant copy of the whole Bible that we have. How old is it? It was made shortly after the year 325. So that's within 300 years of Christ's crucifixion. We have a complete copy of the Bible. Is that significant? That's pretty significant. So, <clears throat> Tischendorf, so Codex Sinaiticus, all of your Bibles, Codex Sinaiticus is in there. I mean, that's, that is one of the bases of modern translation, but it's not the only one. When I say the only one, because there are other good copies, and we now have even earlier copies of parts of the Bible. We have fragments of the copy of fragments of the Gospel of Mark that were made within a generation of when that book was written. We don't have the whole thing, but fragments of it, pieces of papyrus, where we can read what's on it, and it's a fragment of the Gospel of Mark. So within a generation, we can tell that the Gospel of Mark had been written and had been disseminated through the church. And so we now have over 6,500 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, many, many, many of which are very, very early. And so it's the work of textual critics to take all of these things and figure out, was that a mistake? Was this a mistake? What was the original reading of the Greek New Testament as written by the authors, divinely inspired by the Spirit? And that discipline of doing that, of which there are many at work today, was really started in its modern form, and this is where I want to end, by two British scholars named Westcott and Hort. And your Bibles are the fruit of their labors. They were the men, those two as a team, who are going to take all the manuscripts at that, that were around at that time, and they didn't have as many as we do now, and they are going to collate them and produce what we call a critical edition of the Greek New Testament. And that is going to form the basis of all modern translations of the Bible. And it's <clears throat> it was a major milestone in the church that the Enlightenment was now being brought to bear in tangible ways that were in defense of Revelation. It was elevating Revelation once again. We are going to take all these tools that people have been using to pull things down, and now we're going to use it to lift it up. And so 
now, most of the translations of the Bible, not just English, but around the world in other languages, are based on the work of Westcott and Hort and others, but they were the ones that started this work of, crea- of producing a critical edition of the Greek New Testament. So it, it's kind of a, a reversal where you had the Enlightenment tearing down, now it is being brought to bear to lift up. Where before Revelation was dismissed, now the work is being put in to strengthen Revelation, to recognize that Revelation is worth this utmost effort to get to the bottom of, to get back to the very original words of the writers who were inspired by the Spirit to to write these works. And so we all benefit from the fruit of that work today. And and so the, the Enlightenment has had some positive impacts. The Enlightenment was also responsible for the Industrial Revolution and things like that, and we all live in that world, and a lot of it's good, but it was absolutely detrimental to the church. But ultimately, the church will survive and will be strengthened. And here we are today. And I'll close on that. So I hope that that has at least given you guys some idea of where we, how we have gotten to where we are today. How the churches that we see that it seems a little baffling that they do the things they do got to where they are. And there's much, much, much more to say about that. But in an hour, I hope that at least gives some footprints that you can follow to understanding. Any questions? What? I hit it all? Good. All right. Well, then let's close in prayer. Lord, I thank you that you have preserved your remnant through all the travails of history, that no matter what the forces of darkness do to corrupt minds and break bodies and deceive, that you have and and always will preserve your remnant, that through the corruption of a sinful world, your word has been preserved and has been transmitted and that has been put in our hands. I pray that we will use that blessing to further your kingdom, that we will strengthen our own hearts, but also redeem others through it. I thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, that we have a shepherd that we can look to who is not a feeling, that he sits at your right hand, that he died for our sins, that he has redeemed us. I thank you for this blessing beyond blessings. Your word In the name of your Son and by the power of your Spirit, I say all these things. Amen.